fill with wonder, awestruck wonder at the mention of your name. Hallelujah! Jesus, your name is power. listening to recently, uh, Dr. Waki, and he was pointing something out. He says, from the beginning of Scripture to the end, from the beginning of Scripture to the end, what we have is God who desires, to, a holy God who desires to, br- to break into a fallen world. A holy God desiring to break into a fallen world. And, you know, we're singing that song. I'm just, put yourself in the, in the shoes of Isaiah for a moment. Can you picture yourself? And here you're called as a prophet and you're in Israel and, and the, the, the prophets were what? They were the conscience of the nation. They were the, the they, they called the, 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 the nation to account. They called the kings to account, to, to rule righteously, to honor their God. And, and here he is and he's literally caught up in the heavenlies. And it says this, that he, he sees this scene and the, the apostle John tells us, in John chapter 12, that he sees the Lord of hosts, and that Lord of hosts he sees is Christ on the throne. And, and there's these throne guardians that are around him, and the, these throne guardians, the presence of God is so holy that the two of them are covered, two of their wings are covering their face, two are covering their feet. 
In, in uh, two of them, they're, they're, they're lifted up and they're declaring holy, holy, holy. God's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah sees this. Can you picture yourself seeing this? He sees this. And, and he falls down. This is, a, this is a called prophet of God. He falls down like a dead man. He falls down and he says, I, I'm, I'm done for. I'm, that's it. It's over. I have no strength in me. No, no ability to even stand. And in his grace, his mercy, this, this heavenly being comes over, takes a, takes a coal from the altar, touches his lips, and cleanses him. And then he says, Isaiah, would you be willing to participate with me in the calling I have for you, in the message I have for the world? That's us. You see, when it says that you and I are the temple of the living God, that scene in the heavenlies that Isaiah saw, it's that God who has come to dwell in us. It's that God who has called us. And, and it's times like this in, this in these moments of worship and these moments of opening his word that calls us back to, to open up and, to, and to, to, to see these things afresh, to hear them anew, to remind us, to cause us to say, hey, everything I'm seeing that's, that's weighing down on me, I, I, I can push it off. I can push it aside and thank him that, that what we experience here in this world is temporal, is temporary, and that that glory is the glory that's to come. And we're participating in that now. In his spirit. But we will be, be in it fully when he returns. Amen? So, I, that was uh, nothing to do with the message. It's just <laughs> moved by that song. Actually, it has a lot to do with the message. And we'll bring it in. But this last month, we've been talking about um, family. And uh, the... What family means, what it means to, to live and walk out, what it means to be a believer in family. And we've, you know, we've talked that we have the ideal, uh, but we also have the real and how the scripture gives us that real over and over and over again. And, and, and though we may not necessarily be in the ideal, we can walk in the real with him. Amen. And so this, this week, uh, what I want to touch on is, uh, is love that protects. Love that protects. We know that, that God himself is love. God is love. Now, this is a really, really important concept to get, okay? Because God's love isn't just something God does. Love's not out here that God's underneath of it and chooses you know, uh, um, and has to submit to it. Love isn't an idea that God came up with that said, hey, wouldn't it be good if we just all loved one another? Love is literally the character and nature of God, and in the expression of it is the expression of him. To love is literally to live divinely. 
The, the love in itself, when we understood it properly, both comes from God draws, and draws us to God. And from that, we, we reveal God. This is, this is the concept of love in the scriptures. And you know, we, we could, uh, there's not one book of the Bible that doesn't talk about it. Uh, the apostles over and over write about it in so many facets, in so many ways. And it would be impossible for us in, in just a few minutes together to explore the full depths of this. But to begin with, we need to get the idea that God is not just loving us. He is embodied love. Now, that communicates something to us philosophically about God. What does that communicate? It, love, as a result, must have a subject and an object. So if he is love, you know, you can't just, what are you loving if there isn't anything else? Okay, because love is an action. Love is something we do. It's an action. It's a choice that we make. It's an attitude that we have. It's a passion we follow. All the above. It puts someone else before us. How is that possible for that to be the character and nature of God in his eternal being if there's no one else but God? And that's possible because in himself he is a community. The ultimate love relationship in the universe, the ultimate love relationship in the universe is the Father and the Son as expressed between them in the Spirit. How do we know the Spirit? Has anybody ever felt the love of God? Where do you think that comes from? That's how the Father and the Son communicate love between themselves without being material existence. So th- this concept of, of understanding love means we understand who God is. And then we begin to get a glimpse of exactly what we were meant to be, what we were meant to do, the, what it means to be made in his image. To be made in the image of God means that we are meant to be the image of divine love. We are meant to be that. Now, here's the problem. And the Bible takes several chapters, the first 11 chapters, explaining how is it that we came to be dead, cut off from it, separated, corrupt, and divorced from God. And it builds this and speaks it to us and tells us about this. And then the rest of the Bible talks about God coming into that to what? Reveal his love so that, uh, that us being cut off from it can be renewed to him in it. Did you follow all that? Let me put it another way. We are born, dead, cut off, separated, corrupt. You don't think so? Take a look at the world around us. I believe it was G.K. Chesterton said that, that the corruption and the sin in the world is at once the most empirically verifiable fact and the most vociferously denied. Why? Because it's all about the evil out there and nothing about the problems in here. So understanding this helps us to understand ourselves, who we are and how we're meant to be. Who we're meant to be would be a better way of putting it. All right, so what's the problem? The problem is this. I was born to be love, but yet when I am born, I'm born cut off from love. Ephesians 2, you who were dead in your trespasses and sin. I'm cut off dead and separated from it, yet I am born to be it. So what do I do? What do I do? I live my whole life trying to do everything I can to find some way to get that love in me. A lot of times what I end up doing is being so full with pain and, and uh, a fright and, and fear from all and selfishness that's in this world that I just try to find things to at least numb it, at least feel better. 
But then into that, Christ rushes in. He rushes into that. That's what he comes into. You see, what does God do to answer it? God doesn't give us a proposition. He doesn't teach us a class. He doesn't say, here's a moralization of everything you should do. He comes into it. He enters into it. And he literally takes on all of that and exchanges that for love. For love. That's what he exchanges so that we may know his love and in knowing that love, not just sit back and go, wow, isn't it good to know love, but so that we can then become love. Reflect his love, reflect his purpose and restore what he intended from the beginning. That's love that protects. That's love that protects. All right, so in looking at this, we're gonna look at, we're gonna look at three, three passages let me, say th- let me say this first. Peter puts it this way in his letter. He says this. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. He says, no matter what else you do, no matter how much you understand this, no matter what makes sense to you, no matter what you come across, no matter what struggles you're facing, what problems are coming outward, what problems you're facing internally, if you keep this one thing earnest, love one another, what does it do? It covers everything else. It covers everything else. Now, what's fascinating is I was looking up this verse, covers a multitude of sins. And it's interesting because scholars say, well, it means this. No, it means that. No, it means this. The, the, the point being is that it's extremely comprehensive. It's really hard to nail down. It just means this. Whose sins is it talking about? Is it talking about the person's sins or is it talking about someone else's sins? Is it talking about we're forgiven of sin or is it talking about that we're re-pulling people out of sin? And the answer I would submit to you is Yes. So we're going to, very good. Those who say yes have been here on a Wednesday night. So, (laughs) all right. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at, we're going to look at this. We're going to break it down. And and again, all we have is time to just break down one small facet of this, one small piece of this. And I'm going to start with this is Jesus changes the paradigm. We're going to look at three passages and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in the first two, just enough to set up the third one. And there is this scene. He's at the Last Supper. It's Passover. And the, and, and the scene is the Passover lamb. This lamb who dies in order that the wrath of God may not be inflicted on those who are under the blood. Those that, that the wrath of God may not come on those, uh, um, back up, that the wrath of God only comes on those who rebel and refuse to receive But they say, no, we're willing to come under the blood that you've provided. This is the scene. This is what's going on. This is Jesus at that Last Supper dinner. This is the context. And what he does, he does something that shocks the core of the disciples. Now, you would think after three, three and a half years with Jesus, they'd stop getting shocked by Jesus. But that's not what happens. He stands up, and in the custom, they would wear two robes. They had an inner robe that they would wear that would be like next to the skin, and they had an outer robe. And very often, that outer robe would signify a status or or something about who they were. And so he takes this off. So it's very possible he's literally taking off a rabbi robe, something that would have him as teacher, lays it aside. He takes a towel, and he wraps it around his feet, and he begins to bend down and wash the disciples' feet. One by one. 
Now, this would have been radically shocking to the disciples. You see, as a disciple, it was, it was, they were very un, much understood the rabbi-teacher model. It was throughout the first century. You had many rabbis who had disciples. And it was, it, the, the job of the disciples was to follow the rabbi. Whatever the rabbi do, they would pick up their habits. They would pick up their speeches. They would learn their lessons. And they would do for the rabbi. They would serve the rabbi. But there's one thing they would never do. Wash their feet. Mm -mm. That was that was reserved for one class, and that only class that would do that would be a slave class. The only only class of people who would wash your feet would be a slave class. That's it. No one no one else would wash your feet. It was a dirty thing. They wore sandals in those days. They didn't have nice paved sidewalks like we have, and and their so their feet were constantly dirty. No matter how much they took a shower or bath, they would have dirty feet. And so Jesus stands up and he's washing the feet. And it, I mean, Peter, you you hear it in Peter. Peter's like, "You can't wash my feet, Lord." I mean, he's he's incensed by this. He is literally changing their paradigm. He's putting everything that they understand about what love is on its head. And he says this, John 13, he says, when he washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Of course, they didn't understand. (laughs) You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So what is he doing here? He's like, look, I'm the master. You know that you're to follow my teachings. If I have just done something, even if it shocks your sensibilities in which you understand, what are you to do? Are you above me? No, you're not above me. So therefore, if I have served you at this level, how are you to treat one another? You are to serve one another. This, again, was shocking. But he says this. Uh, Jump down to verse 34, and it says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He just gave the single most uh, qualifying example of what it means to be a Christian. It's not your doctrinal statement, though that's important. It's not the church you go to, the denomination you belong to, though all those things are important. It's how do you treat other people? Do you treat them the way Jesus did? Does that mean you serve them? Now, Paul takes this example a little further. We're going to turn over to, um, to the book of Philippians, and we're going to examine this here in the book of Philippians. And uh, this section, this new paradigm, this new understanding to be a servant, and ultimately, I'm back up and I'll say this. Well, we'll see this here. Uh, um, uh, he's gonna, he's, Paul is going to give us this new paradigm, and he's going to put bu- uh, flesh on these bones. He's going to meet it out for us. He's going to tell us exactly what Jesus is trying to say right here. And this is in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So how much should we do for selfish ambition and conceit? Why is it so quiet? 
nothing. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. There it is. That's what it means to love as Christ loved. To count others as more significant than yourself. What others? What others? Well, I mean, there's tons of examples. But the whole, the whole point, and this is one of the absolute radical changes in shift that we have in the Bible. It says, all people are created equal in the eyes of God. It says, he shows no partiality. So the answer is, all others. I'm telling you, it literally took from, um, well, let me keep going here. I won't finish if I go off there. All right. Some of you know that I'm serious when I say that. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from self, uh, selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There is a mouthful in that one statement alone. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In that one statement, who is supposed to take care of your interests? That's not a rhetorical question. Who's supposed to take care of your interests? You are. You are. You're not supposed to be putting off your interests. Wait a minute. Now, most of us are thinking, well, that makes me selfish. No, no, no. Here's what happens. Well, when is somebody else going to take care of me? When is somebody else going to care for me? When do my needs get met? When, 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 is, when, are, when is the things I want going to happen? Well, he says right here, look to your own needs and then look to the needs of others. What happens? What happens if you develop a community of people who take care of their own burdens and then help one another? Because you know that we have times when we need help from others. What happens in that setting? It is radical. It is radical. Let me keep going. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now notice, he's about to say, look, Jesus had this mindset, but he was God and we can't do it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, here's a mindset. This mindset is for you. It's the mindset of Jesus. Here, I'm about to give you the mindset of Jesus and it's for you. This is how we apply this, counting others more significant than ourselves. And it says what in verse six? It says, who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God. Paul is coming right out and saying, here he is, existing in eternal God stuff. If you want to know what the Father looks like, you look at the Son. They look identical. So Jesus said at the Last Supper. He says, here he was, he's in eternal God stuff. And what, what was the mindset? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It means that he had a humble mindset that says, I am not going to look, look, he says, look, I'm God. Why would I care? I'm up here. They're, they're but mere humans. No, that was not the mindset of Jesus. The mindset of Jesus is as though I am of eternal God's stuff. I am willing to step down from this and not hold on to this and take on the form of a servant, the form of a slave. He says, Though being the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form. That, the Greek word behind that, being found in human form, being found in a human shell. Paul is very carefully crafting this to tell us all of the, all of the divine nature of God in bodily form. 
He humbled himself to the point of laying down all of that glory in order to come here and enter in, God breaking into this world. But why? Why did he do that? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. My goodness, we, we miss the significance of this because we don't live in those times. But the cross in that time represented the mighty, terrifying power of Rome to, to, to kill the lowliest of society. Anybody who would rebel against us, anybody who is lowly and we consider invaluable, that's who gets the cross. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. That's why Paul was not crucified. He was a Roman citizen. That's why they beheaded him. It was considered the, the, the most shameful death of all. And Jesus says, that which you all consider the most shame, bring it on. That I might show what it means to put others before self. This is what it means. This is radical. And then he says this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That which we consider the most abased, the most shameful, the lowest thing is the very thing that exalts him to the place where all of creation will sing out praise and worship to him to the glory of God the Father. You see, we just see the humility side, we don't see the glory side. How many of us actually want to see the glory of the righteousness of God transform society? Well, it's not done any different than it was when Jesus did it. It's the same means where we, what? Radically see others as more important than ourselves. All right, let me keep going. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. This phrase, to work it out with fear and trembling, it doesn't... Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It's not a literal phrase where you're sitting there cowering, scared to death about your... What it means is that you are taking it so seriously that you're putting all your effort and energy and intention into this is really important. I need to do this. That's what the phrase means. It's like, I, I am, I am going to put my... Oh, maybe I should put my heart, soul, mind, and strength into it. Huh. Where have I heard that before? You see, paying attention and working this out. So there's this part where I'm doing it, but then it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So you say, what, what's he saying? It's not that we're left alone struggling here trying to figure this out. It's that he literally puts his spirit, that Holy Spirit that we were, that, that we were singing about, that, that his presence literally shook the temples, has come to dwell in us. And with us to empower us. And as we humble ourselves, as we go, Lord, I've screwed it up today. I, I, but, but I lift that to you. And his grace comes on us. And he, we, we, we uh, um, meditate on his word. We, uh, we repent to one another. We look at the areas where we have fallen. And we say, I, I, Lord, help me in that area to, to walk stronger with my brother and my sister. When we see suffering, we lay, put a hand out. When we have an opportunity to speak truth and love, we, we get the courage and the, and the guts up to, 
to say, let me, let me share with you the, the truth of the word of God in love in your life. When we do that, the Holy Spirit empowers us, enables us, and works through us. Because we care about others more than ourselves. All right, so Paul takes us, takes us to the final passage. I said all that to set up this last passage, this last section, because we reach this last section and we get to it, and, and my goodness, the amount of controversy that it can cause in people's minds uh, when we get to this last passage. So um, this is in Ephesians. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 1. We're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to skip through um, as, we, as we get to this last section. And so what's going on? We have love that protects. What is the first thing about love that protects we're talking about? Jesus changes the paradigm. He changes everything about what that means. And Paul tells us that that means that we're going to put others before ourselves to the point that, uh, of, of um, trusting God with everything. And now he's going, to, he's going to put it in real life. How does that look in real life? How does that work out in our relationships? How do we do that on a daily basis? Well, let's look here in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Um, just brief story here. So uh, when, we were, when we were first married, I had a, a couple of different habits that my wife would say to me, she goes, why do you do that? Like, okay, here's one. You know, a lot of the ladies, this will drive you crazy. But I would take the, you know, the hand towel? I'd wash my hands off the hand towel, and then I'd wash my face, and I'd use the towel and touch my face like that. And she's like, oh, what? You, here, you have your own towel. You can't have a kitchen towel. <laughs> she said, why do you do that? Where do you, that comes from? I don't know. I've just always done this. I just, it's just, I don't know. You know, I lived on my own for several years before I got married. I, don't, I just did it. Then some months later, we're uh, visiting um, my parents, and they're in the kitchen, and I'm not paying any attention, but, but all of a sudden, I hear Diane go, aha, that's where you got it. And I look over, and my father's got the hand towel, and he's going like this. <laughs> I was like, I didn't even know it. I had no idea where I got it. But my, I would hear, I remember my parents talking when they were com- when I was coming up all the time. You know, my mother always saying, you sound just like your father. You sound just like your father. My dad, say, my dad would call. He says, you're just playing the tapes. I'm just playing the tapes. Well, this is where Paul starts. Be imitators of God as beloved children. How do we play those tapes? We play those tapes because we spend time. We come under. We are there in his, uh, uh, their presence all the time, and we pick up the good and the bad. Well, if you're in God's presence all the time, guess what you pick up? Only the good. And he deals with the bad. As a beloved child, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's appealing to, to the Old Testament sacrifices where it talked to them. These were sweet smelling aromas before the Lord. Ver, jump down to verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with him. Do not let anybody talk you into living for yourself when you know you're to live for Christ. Do not be deceived into putting yourself before you put before putting him. 
When we rightly understand that, when we rightly get that, guess what ultimately happens to us? Everything we're actually looking for is what gets fulfilled. And everything we don't want to happen is actually what does. I'm hyperbole, but you get the point of what I'm saying here. All right. Jump down to verse 15. Therefore, I'm sorry, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. evil. You say, listen, we live in a world that is hard and frightening. How many know this is a world that is hard and frightening? He says, but it's temporary. It's not always going to be this way. There will be a time that's different. So make the best use of this. Therefore, verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there it is, he's just laid it out. If we want to know what it means to live this new paradigm, we're to submit to one another. We're to submit our lives to one another. Humble yourselves. Consider others is more important. Love, the, uh, be imitators of God. This is it. And then what he does in the next section is Paul then begins to explain what social life would look like if we actually did that. What would it look like if we submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ? And then he begins to give instructions for wives. And then he gives instructions for husbands. And he gives instructions for children. And he gives instructions for fathers, for parents. And then he gives instructions to masters. And then he gives instructions to slaves and servants. And then he gives instructions about the spiritual war that we're battling. And he says something absolutely amazing in this passage, in all of this. He says... Because God shows no partiality. My goodness, in the ancient world, that is so foreign. Such a foreign thought. You see, what is Paul addressing? In the culture, in Roman culture at the time, number one understood was if uh, there were different stations in life. And if I had a high station in life, I had more value in life. And anybody below my station does not have the value I have. They did not value life. They didn't, surely didn't see us being created in the image of God. And for Paul to say that, that, that slaves and masters are equal, that is so radical a thought in its time. And so what is he doing? What is he doing? He's trying to tell Christians how to be Christians in a culture that is so far into biblical thinking. You're in a culture, it's far into biblical thinking. The, the man is the, the head of the house and, and who, who is pretty much seen as the owner of his wife, his kids, his servants, and anybody else that was served in that house. He owns it all. He could treat them one. There were even cases where he could kill indiscriminately. And Paul is saying, now you're in that culture. You're living in that place. How are you going to show this uh, submitting to one another, this culture of love, this putting others before you so that you demonstrate the cross of Christ. He begins with wives. And we're only going to hit, we'll, we'll hit, I'm only going to hit these briefly. He begins with wives. He said, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is, uh, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in, uh, submit in everything to their husbands. However, and now, if you jump down to 33, 
If you jump down to verse 33, Paul tells us exactly what he means by that. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If we go over to Peter, Peter develops it out even more. Likewise, wives, subject your, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your, your respectful and pure conduct. What is this about? When you live in a society, in a culture, or with an individual who sees themselves up here, and you begin to voluntarily respect that person and submit to that person and, and act in a way that shows beautiful conduct towards that person, Paul says this, you, Peter says this, you are going to convict that person. You're going to bring that person under the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to demonstrate the person, character, nature of Christ. You're going to literally change society. And then he turns around and he, what does he say to husbands? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, we could literally stop right there, right? How much of a changed world would you have if husbands began to love their wives like by going to the cross for them? Wow. Imagine telling that to a husband in a culture who saw all his family members as his property. This is radical. This changes everything. And he says that he might sanctify her. What does that mean? Treat your wives in a way that is special, set apart, different. But by cleansing her, uh, having cleansed her by the washing of, I'm sorry, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Do you see the principle he's saying? When we honor someone else before ourselves, we're actually loving ourselves. Why? Well, what happened to Jesus? He's exalted to the place where every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God lays low the proud, he exalts the humble. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Do you nourish and cherish your family's husbands? Do you nourish them? That doesn't mean you have to be the scholar. It doesn't mean you have to be the be-all, end-all. It means, do you understand the people in your family, and do you bring out the giftings in them? Do you submit to the giftings in them? Do you do what Christ did in the church? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, is a, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's the thing about these commands. I'm going to just throw this in here. These are commands of Scripture, and notice that they're not conditional. It doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands when your husband does this. It doesn't say, husbands, love your wives if your wife does this. They're not conditional. But at the same token, they're not compulsion either. There's no incentive to say, hey, husband, you need to do this. Hey, wife, you need to do this. There's no compulsion on the other. It's voluntary on the part of the individual. The only person you're to be concerned with is you. Not to worry about what the other does. Now look, and I know the examples people bring up all the time, and I get them. They're, you know, what about an abuse and these types of things? We can, we can, God's never going to put us in a situation that's going to be harmful. Let me say that. We're not, we're not to be in a, 
continue ourselves in a situation that's harmful. But that's not the majority of the time. We don't use the example way out here to say that's the norm of being Christ. Our life, our family plan is much bigger than ourselves. I tell this to new couples all the time. I say, you all are getting married, and it's because of the passion and love you have for one another. But you right now are more, what you are doing is bigger than you. You're carrying out the plan of God for society. And if we want society to be what God wants it to be, you have to make this work. You have to make this work. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you and live long in the land. Once again, this is about what? It's about children putting their parents first. Notice it doesn't say, if you have Christian parents who behave to you perfectly, then do it. How many stories I've heard of, of, of children, adult children, who sought to honor their parents and, and win their parents to the Lord as a result. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, radical command in its time. Your children aren't yours to command to do this and that. Your children are equal heirs of the kingdom that you're to see as being in the image of God and you're to impart your wisdom. You're to impart the word of God and lift them up. Bond servants, obey your, your earthly masters with fear and trembling. We already dealt with fear and trembling. We know what that means. With a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. In other words, he's saying, listen, if you're a bond servant, if you have a, a, a master to serve, and for us, we, how about, a, how about a, a, a boss? How about a boss? How about somebody who has authority over you? How about submitting to that authority as you would to Christ? How about doing it earnestly and letting Christ work through you? Now, some would say, yeah, but, you know, they treat me so mean. Well, well he turns around and says, master's, do the same to them. He just told masters to behave the same way towards slaves as slaves are towards the masters. Do you catch how radical that is? Do you see how radical that is? The culture that he's speaking to you. Masters, you're to treat your slaves the same way that you want them to treat you. Why? Because God shows no partiality. And finally, be strong in the Lord, Lorena. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So this is, this is what hits me about this as we're closing out. You see, what we do is we, we take these, these letters, we take these things, and we'll break them into sections. And, and I did that today. I pulled out sections. But a lot of times we'll look at these sections apart and separate and not look at the full context. And so we have this section at the end that talks about putting on the armor of God, about spiritual warfare, about defeating, defeating powers and principalities. And we don't tie it to living a real life of humility with one another. When you have this mindset, which is the mind of Christ, who didn't consider it equality with God, something to be held on to, but took on the form of the lowliest of society. 
obeying God to the point of willing to die the most shameful death. When we have that mindset and we do that as husbands, as wives, as parents, as children, as bosses, as employers, we are actually doing spiritual warfare. We are actually assailing the powers, the principalities. We are actually living out and putting on the full armor of God. Now, lest you think that this is just a biblical exercise and, you know, it's like these are nice scriptures. Can I tell you, that's exactly what Christians did. And, and this small, tiny thing called Christianity that was a fledgling little group of people defeated Rome. Think about the implication of that. They refused to be stamped out no matter what was put against them. They refused to stop putting others first. They refused to stop loving. They refused to stop lifting up Christ no matter what they faced, no matter what came against them. And eventually the emperor himself became a believer. That's crazy. That's crazy. We're living the legacy of that. We're here in this room because of that. Lest you think this is a a weak way of living that has no power and, and no effect in the world. We live such a depth of the legacy of that, we don't even understand how much that is infused. Here's the thing, is it has now been entrusted to us to do the same thing. It has now been put in our hands to be the ones who take it out the door. Amen? So the love that protects, Jesus changes the paradigm. How? He counted others more significant than himself, which is crazy when you know who he was. And that means to apply it in real life, not just something we read in a book somewhere. Amen? 